0: Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host,
1: Pete Mikaitis.
0: Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 240 with Michael Gelb. I think you'll dig this conversation because Michael brings a host of research and enthusiasm and interest into the question of what makes for real connection and how can we do that effectively. So you'll learn one, why super busy global leaders make the time for face to face interactions, two, how to consciously spread positive emotion. And three, approaches to practicing the opposite of the stress response. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced here, you can find that on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep240. Now, here's Michael's story. Michael is one of the world's leading authorities on the application of genius thinking to personal and organizational development and a pioneer in the fields of creative thinking, executive coaching, and innovative leadership. Michael co-directs the acclaimed Leading Innovation Seminar at the University of Virginia's Darden Graduate School of Business and is on the faculty of the Institute for Management Studies. He brings more than 30 years of experience as a professional speaker, seminar leader, and executive coach to his diverse international clientele. Here's Michael. Michael, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. My pleasure. Now, before you were writing influential books, I understand you had a career as a professional juggler who performed with some pretty big names. Can you tell
1: us a little bit about that? I worked my way through graduate school as a professional juggler. I used to juggle in Harvard Square. I once made about $80 in quarters in three hours. All right. I used to do children's parties. And I lived in England for a while, and my buddy, who was the science editor for Reuters news service in Europe, he and I used to get together and practice our juggling in Hyde Park. And one day, a fellow came up to us and said, hey, how would you like to juggle on stage tonight with Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones? We'll pay you 50 pounds. We said, sure. And we were on stage that night, and it worked out well, so they invited us to the whole Tour and then we got to perform at the Nebworth Rock Festival in front of an audience of hundreds of thousands of people on a stage shaped like Mick Jagger's mouth,
0: <laughs> like his mouth. <laughs> I don't, is his mouth different than any other mouth? I guess I, I've got a picture in my head. which
1: yes. is fascinating. Uh, <laughs> it's just like you picture it. It's just like you picture it. <laughs>
0: Well, so how you've come so far, well, I don't know, maybe you've slid, which is higher. I don't know.
1: They're just different. You know, it's not hierarchical. <laughs> Absolutely. The funny thing is I wasn't a Wild Stones fan or anything, but I knew it would be a good story. And I got a friend of mine into the concerts as a guest, and he's still grateful to me to this day. And then we got invited to juggle I had a series of Bob Dylan concerts and I got my friend into that. So he's still he just will be eternally grateful to me for getting him in to those events. And I did take my early experience as a professional juggler and I leveraged it into corporate seminars where I would use juggling as a metaphor for teaching people how to learn. I would put them in teams and get them to pick the balls up for one another and coach each other and use it as a way to teach people principles of coaching that they could use to be more effective leaders. I once taught a thousand IBM engineers how to juggle all together in a big hotel ballroom. So I've had a lot of fun with the juggling and I still work it into my programs for groups all over the world. Awesome. Well, today I mostly want to chat about some of
0: your perspectives in your latest book, The Art of Connection. Uh, What is The Art of Connection all about and why is it particularly important right now?
1: Well, what it's all about is building relationships. And why did I write this book? Because for most of the years I've been consulting and training, leading seminars for organizations around the world, my focus has been on creativity, on innovation, and accelerated learning. But if you really want to get anything done, you've got to do it with other people. So I've been paying attention to what really works to build those relationships that will help you resolve conflict, come up with solutions in a more effective way, and implement those solutions. And the art of connection is packed with pretty much everything I've learned in 38 years of working with people around the world. Oh, beautiful.
0: And I've read some disturbing research in terms of just how we have fewer friends now than before. We're more disconnected. Can you maybe give us a little bit of the the lay of of the land to perhaps the problem or or the diagnosis?
1: Well, we have a blessing and a curse. The blessing is we can get information from people around the world instantaneously. And that's amazingly seductive. I mean, you can tune into anybody anywhere almost any time if their phone is on. So that's On the one hand, how marvelous is that? On the other hand, it's a relatively superficial level of communication. So we have more so called friends or people in our network, but less real connection, less real heart to heart, face to face, soul to soul human interaction. And that does nurture us in all sorts of ways. There's a lot of research showing that. Person to person connection is a key source of our sense of well being, our longevity, our health, our happiness. And it also translates into success. What's fascinating is I I work with lots of people who run global organizations. And of course, they do lots of connecting, lots of meeting, lots of information sharing on their devices. But these people will tell you that face to face, in the room, eye-to-eye relationships and connections are more important now than ever before. And they all go out of their way to make sure they have those connections with the people who are important to them.
0: That's a pretty compelling proof point because these are among the most busy, in-demand, maybe most tempted to execute communications as brutally efficiently as possible.
1: And well this is the thing is it's important to be able to be efficient to get things done and we can use the technology to help us. That's the blessing part of it. But if you use it as a something to hide behind, if you use it as a way of objectifying people and viewing people only in a transactional manner, well people ultimately don't really like that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm with you there. Everybody wants to be seen, wants to be respected, wants you to connect with them, wants you to empathize with them. And it's just so much more effective to do that
0: in person. All right. I'm with you there. And so I love it that you've gone beyond some of this philosophy and really broken it down into a few key actionable principles and practices. We love actionable here. So could you walk us through some of the top
1: practices that facilitate a great connections? Sure can. The first one is to embrace humility. Okay. And obviously this one comes first because if you don't embrace humility, you're probably not going to read the rest of the book because you think you know it already. All right. But it's really the attitude that makes us Curious. If I think I know you, if I think I've got you figured out, if I think I know what type you are, if I think I'm a good listener, well, chances are I'm not. And chances are you probably wouldn't agree with me. All right. It's only when I have that attitude that says, gee, if I'm paying attention over the years, I probably noticed that people miscommunicate all the time. When I get people in a classroom on this topic, one of the exercises we do, we take a simple word. You can take any word, like the word art, and we get people to write down the first 10 words they think of. And then we put them in groups of four and we get them to share the words they wrote down and make a little chart of how many they had in common. And what we discover is that people have almost nothing in common. So one person might write movies and cinema and actors and someone else might write sculpture and clay. Is is that what you mean? Exactly. Exactly. And then even when people get one or two in common, if you get them to do 10 words of association on the one they had in common, you find out they meant something different by it anyway. Oh, interesting. And this translates into everyday communication challenges. I mean, people are all too familiar with the notion of having a conversation. The other person nods in agreement. And then what happens is different than what you thought you agreed. Oh, but I thought you said, oh, but I thought you meant, but weren't you listening? I mean, how often are those sorts of phrases repeated in everyday life? So one of my mottos is, if you're not humble, it means you're not paying attention. So Once you embrace that attitude, that opens up your curiosity. The other thing it does, if you have this humility, people perceive you as more responsive, as more open, as more accessible, and they're more likely to engage with you. And engagement is obviously the key to building relationships. So, Embrace humility is where the journey begins. Oh, you know, right now, as you describe this
0: sort of these misunderstandings, I-, I can't help. I'm thinking about randomly the movie Bridesmaids, in which they're talking about different ideas for the event, the festivities. And one person says, oh, how about a night in Paris or something? The other one says, yes. And building off that idea, a how- fight club. And so it's like, what? It's not even remotely connected or related. And so I think that's a funny little exchange that sticks with me, because like, that's so ridiculous. But you're saying, <laughs> no, in practice, folks are rampantly misunderstanding each other all the time. And
1: emoticons and emojis are not substitutes for body language, voice tonality, eye contact, and being together with people. Even if it's an Animoji, Michael? <laughs> hey, look, I, love, I have as much fun with them as anybody, and they're delightful tools to play with. But Again, if you use it all as a substitute for connecting with people in real time face to face, you're going to find that your life just becomes a little more shallow and that there's a lot more misunderstanding.
0: I hear you. So the core of the humility then is just acknowledging, you know, you probably don't understand what that person said. So get off your high horse or don't presume that you have it figured out, but go ahead and humble yourself and ask the key follow-up questions to make sure that you've properly received what they were trying to convey. Yes. Okay, cool. Well, so now you've got a few other great practices. What do you mean by being a glowworm?
1: Well, this comes from a quote from Winston Churchill. He said, we are all worms, but I do believe that I am a glowworm. (laughs) I love the accents. Please keep those coming. (laughs) (laughs) And Churchill, this is in the days when the only way that the leader of the nation could communicate with the people was on the radio, London was being bombed every night for 56 nights straight. People were sleeping in the subway, in the underground. And you know, they didn't know then that they were going to win the war and defeat pure evil. But one man with this amazing vision and courage through his words and through his voice tone, inspired a whole nation to persevere under incredible odds and to emerge victorious. So Churchill really was a glowworm. And in contemporary terms, we now know, as Churchill understood intuitively, that emotions are contagious, for better or for worse. So a glow worm is somebody who consciously spreads uplifting positive emotion. Okay. And so
0: now I'm curious, in practice, how does one do that in a way that's authentic and real and it gets folks taking you seriously? Because I guess I'm wondering, it's probably possible to be over the top in a way that like, oh, this guy is, you know, he's not even for real.
1: All of this is ideally sourced through authenticity and finding natural way To express yourself, if you're a pessimist, this is harder, which is why in a previous book, I reviewed the work of Dr. Martin Seligman, who wrote Learned Optimism. So it's a skill you can learn. It's a skill of emotional intelligence. And since optimists get sick less frequently, recover faster when they do get sick, make a lot more money in the course of their careers, outperform their aptitude tests and live seven years longer, you might consider cultivating (laughs) this particular aspect of emotional intelligence and do it in an authentic way because your attitude not only affects your immune system moment to moment, that's why optimists live longer. And that's why they're more resistant to disease. It's why they recover faster, because they have stronger immune systems. So you want to recognize that your way of responding to challenges in life, and look, anybody can be an optimist when everything's going your way. It really counts when you're facing adversity But the power here is that it's not just affecting your immune system, it's affecting the immune system of the people around you. So if you get together with people, as many people's idea of bonding is to commiserate, which means to be miserable together. So we all get together and complain about how bad everything is. and oh, that's nothing. It's even worse for me. Now, I got to tell you, what we're talking about here is... A powerful secret of building healthy, positive relationships. It's also a secret of longevity. My parents are 90 and 87, and my dad recently did 28 push ups. He's just amazing. Oh, great. And they're super sharp. I go visit them, I bring them nice wine, cook them a nice meal, and we have stimulating, vibrant, wonderful conversation. They're super engaged in life, they're reading three or four books at a time. And they get together with the people in the community where they live. They're in one of these active retirement communities. And my dad runs the wine tasting group. My mom, who used to be a psychotherapist, runs a couple of discussion groups. And they just meet to have breakfast and conversation with their friends pretty much every day. They go down to dinner. My dad brings a bottle of wine. And they have a rule. And the rule is, no organ recitals. All right. In other words, you're not allowed to complain about what's going wrong with various parts of your body.
0: Well, man, it sounds like fun. I, I want to be part of an active retirement community. That sounds awesome.
1: <laughs> but you know what's great about it, part of why When these communities are well run, and theirs is, it extends people's lives and the quality of their lives because it turns out that connection or the lack thereof is a huge factor in our wellness. And as we get older, the margin for error gets less. I wrote this book called Brain Power, Improve Your Mind As You Age. I wrote it to celebrate my 60th birthday five years ago. And one of the studies I reported on in that book, they took uh, cohorts of people who were 80 years old. And those who reported themselves as lonely were mostly gone before 85 and had much higher incidences of various forms of dementia. Those who reported having three or more positive social interactions on a daily basis were much more likely to be alive at 85 and had much, much lower rates of dementia. So social connectedness keeps your brain healthy, strengthens your immune system, and it's also just correlated with what researchers call perceived sense of well-being, which is a Fancy term for happiness.
0: All right, excellent. So, then in practice, if you're being a glowworm, so you're taking an optimistic view, you're trying to make meaningful connections with folks and and take an interest in their lives. And so, are there any other maybe key uh, sentences or opportunities in which you uh, can really habitually be a glowworm, whether it comes to appreciating people or thanking people? Or what what are some of the easy ways to do
1: that every day? Well, here's one that's research based and really powerful. Maybe you've heard about the Pygmalion effect. It's also known as the Rosenthal effect for the researcher who first documented it about 50 years ago. And one of the most striking experiments, they took army drill sergeants and they told the drill sergeants that the recruits they were getting for the next six weeks were below average. And at the end of the six weeks, those recruits performed about 25% below the average standard. Then they told the same drill sergeants that the next group they were getting were above average, and you guessed it, at the end of six weeks, that group performed 25% above average. Now, this is measured in real performance, things like the number of push-ups they could do.
0: Mm -hmm. Or like shooting accuracy, like like quantitative measures of performance.
1: Quantitative measures. Mm -hmm. Of course, the groups were completely average. The only difference was the way the drill sergeants were primed to view their recruits. And when they told the drill sergeants this, they refused to believe it. Same kind of studies have been done over and over again with teachers. If a teacher is told that children are gifted, guess what? They perform like gifted children. And if the teacher is told that the children are slow and difficult, guess what? They perform more slowly as though they were more difficult. So. The notion of looking for the best in others, and this is really important in a marriage. I mean, if you look at Gottman's research on what makes marriage work. I've been reading that, yes. Yep, right. One of the really important things is that you look for the best in your partner. And William James said, wisdom is knowing what to overlook. So this gets really, really powerful, too, We realize that the same thing applies to your self-image. So are you looking for the best in yourself every day? So this isn't just rah-rah, cheerleader optimism on some superficial level. This is powerful. This is how do you see yourself in your own potentiality every day? How do you give other people the best opportunity? to do well, to bring out people's best. And here's the thing. This is, again, it's not mediated by some cosmic, well, maybe it is mediated by cosmic energy, but we can't validate that. But when Rosenthal looks at what happens when the teacher who's been told that a group is, gifted. What does that teacher do? In the interaction with those children, the teacher is nodding in a positive way. She's smiling. She's making eye contact. Her whole body language is affirming and encouraging. And in that environment, the child's more likely to come up with a good answer. And when the teacher's been told that these kids are difficult, all too often what happens is she's shaking her head subtly. In the negative, and she's less patient with the answer, and she's more likely to interrupt the child and say, You're wrong. So it's mediated by these subtle nonverbal cues. So if you can, you want to consciously choose to be sharing uplifting positive cues with other people and yourself throughout the course of your day, that translates into what we often call charisma.
0: Okay, I love that. So in proactively seeking out the good in people, it's sort of like you're not faking it in the sense of you're just actually responding naturally to what you believe.
1: Sure, and it doesn't mean you're not critical and discerning. Yes, please be critical and discerning. See the weaknesses, see the challenges, see the difficulties and then figure out how you're going to make the best of that particular situation, that particular relationship. And having said that, be wary of people who you experience as continuously draining your energy, people who are rude or obnoxious or abusive, and do your best to avoid being around those people, whether they are in your life or on your television screen. So there's a little section in the book where I say uh, to be a glowworm, avoid tapeworms. So that kind of sums up the message right there.
0: Well, fantastic. Thank you. Well, could you share with us a couple of the other most powerful uh, principles and practices here?
1: Sure. Well, the next one in the book is to achieve the three liberations. All right. And what are the three liberations? The first is to free ourselves from the reflexive tendency to view everything from our own evaluative lens. In other words, do I like it or do I not like it? Okay. And this isn't helped by contemporary sites that have a thumbs up and a thumbs down for absolutely everything we see. And it's fine to like or dislike things, but if that's the only way you look at the world, you may not be seeing it as it is. You're just seeing it in terms of how the lower centers of your brain view it in terms of is it good for my survival or not, which isn't the way we view the world in the most enlightened manner. So first liberation is to be free from evaluation and learn to observe things in a more objective manner. All right. The second one is to learn not to take things personally. And this is kind of tricky. And I confess, I'm my personality type, I'm the type. I am the type—I take everything personally. I'm ready to just have a big conflict very quickly. That's my nature. That's part of how I've learned all this, because I've learned to not react in my automatic, habitual way, which it might be to make things worse, because I'm from New Jersey. People say, are you talking to me? You got a problem? (laughs) People can be very confrontational where I grew up. And usually that makes things worse. So I've learned to ask myself the question, how would I respond to this if I didn't take it personally? And I love that question because all of a sudden it opens up a lot more circuitry in your brain to think of creative ways to respond instead of responding in a defensive, ego-centered manner. And then the third of the liberations is to liberate yourself from whining, blaming, and complaining because that's just going to get you basting in your stress hormones and exacerbating the stress hormones of your fellow commiserators. So free yourself from whining, blaming, and complaining and start focusing on solutions. Well,
0: Michael, these sound like some great liberations. and Indeed, it would be liberating to you be free of these things. So I guess in practice, though, if these are sort of deeply ingrained mental habits, how do we get some momentum in, in achieving these liberations?
1: That's why in the book, each chapter has a practice at the end called the greatest point of leverage? Because there's all sorts of practical things you can do. But I'm really thinking on behalf of the reader, on behalf of the students in my classes, what's the one thing you can do that will just have the greatest point of leverage for really having the ability to apply this? And one of them is to learn to organize your nervous system. Now, in the book, I put in a practice that I teach martial arts. I teach Aikido, Tai Chi, and Qigong. Oh, cool. And one of the great things in martial practice, you're basically learning to shift your whole physiology out of the fight-flight response and into a centered, balanced freedom so that you can respond in a relaxed way. The more dangerous fighter is the more relaxed fighter. You know, you look at old clips of uh, Muhammad Ali floating like a butterfly. He was able to sting like a bee because he just looked so easy and comfortable, and that's what we say about people who are really good at anything is they make it look easy. so if you want to be really good in building relationships, the art of connection, you want to cultivate this ability to shift out of the amygdala hijack. Stress response, fight-flight modality and into this poised, centered, balanced, alert, ready-for-anything modality. So one of the things people can do, there's a practice in the book, you can do it every day. It doesn't even take that long, but it's a great way to center yourself, organize yourself. But if you do it every day when you're not in a crisis or a conflict or a difficulty, then you'll have much more ability to really utilize it when you need it. If you just try to say, oh, what was the thing that guy wrote in that book and try to use it when all of a sudden you feel you're under personal verbal assault? you probably won't be able to bring it to bear. So it's something to practice every day. Well, could you maybe walk us through one of those live right now? Sure. Okay, so obviously people want to uh, make sure they're in an environment where it's okay to bring your full attention to what you're doing in the moment besides, for example, driving or then don't do this while you're doing something else, basically. So okay. put down the scissors. <laughs> That's the quote. quote. That's the quote of the episode. Yeah. Put down the scissors. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> right. So create an environment where you won't be interrupted if possible. Then, once you know this, once you know how to practice this, you can then pretty much do it anywhere. But for learning it in the beginning, and if you're sitting, you can do it sitting or standing. Let's just say you're sitting. You want to have your feet flat on the floor evenly distributed between the two feet. You want to sit, feel around in your rear end for your sitting bones. Feel the two points of contact with the chair. You want to be aware of those two points, two feet on the floor. And then you want to sit at your full stature. So align around the vertical axis. All right. If you say out loud the phrase, let go, Just say it right now. Let go. Let go. Do you notice where your tongue goes when you say la and let go? It's like up and to the front? Yeah, just behind your upper teeth, your palate there. So let your tongue rest on that point. It turns out that that point is an acupuncture point that connects the flow of energy down the front of your body and up the back of your body. So your tongue rests lightly on that point. Now, can you picture the Mona Lisa in your mind's eye? Yes. You know her famous little smile. Mm-hmm. Do your best to imitate her little smile with the tongue still there. Right, with your tongue still there. Okay, I'm with you. Got your little smile. Eyes are open and soft. So you're using your peripheral vision and you're seeing as much of the space that you're in as you can. So you're aligned around the vertical axis. Eyes are soft. Tongue on the point. Got the little smile. Next ingredient is invite the breath in through your nose, and fill your lower belly with your inhalation. So your lower belly is going to expand, your lower ribs and your lower back expand on the inhalation. And then exhale. And of course, your lower back and lower belly and lower ribs compress. And then, real simple, expand the time of the inhale. Slow it down. So maybe start with a count of six on the inhale and then a count of six on the exhale. And then practice that for a minute or two, at least once a day. If you can do two or three times a day, so much the better. But what you notice about that simple practice is we're doing things that are the opposite of the stress response. What happens to your posture in the fight-flight response? You're like tensed up and raring to go. Right, you're ready to go. You're ready to fight or run away. So when you're upright, it sends a different message to your whole nervous system. What's your facial expression like when you're in the fight-flight response? Is mean, like a warrior? Like, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's some kind of frown or gritted teeth or angry look. Instead, we have a little smile like the Mona Lisa. What are your eyes like? They tend to get tight and focused on a point. So here we're softening the eyes and taking in the periphery. And you're breathing when you're in the fight-flight response, tends to be just in your chest and very rapid. So we're breathing all the way into the belly and we're slowing it down. So we're training ourselves to do the opposite of the stress response. And this puts us in a very resourceful, centered, balanced place. And it's not that you can stay in this place all the time, but if you practice this for a few minutes a day, you can get back to it faster when you need it. And that's the real key. It's not that you don't lose it. We all lose it from time to time. How quickly can you get your center back so you don't say something or do something that you will regret? The founder of Aikido, this is martial art that I've studied and taught for many years, is one of the great martial arts masters ever. And one of his senior students is one of the masters that I studied with. And this master Once said to the founder, You're perfect. You never make mistakes. And the founder said, Oh, no, I make mistakes all the time. I just correct them so quickly that you can't see it.
0: All right. That's good. And I'd love to get your view then in terms of in great detail. And thank you for that. That's really nice to make it complete and actionable, about what's going on with the body. And so is the mind, where are we focusing that? Are there particular thoughts, or or where is the attention, should that be placed upon?
1: Lovely, so for starters, I just get people to place their attention on their breathing, and on the little checklist I just gave you, make sure you're smiling, put your tongue on the point, check that you're at your full upright stature, aligned around the vertical axis, feet on the floor, Balanced on the sitting bones. So, at first, that's more than enough for people to do with their minds. Once you have consolidated this so that you can just say, okay, center, boom. And then, if I say that to myself, I don't have to repeat all those things. I instantaneously shift my posture, open my vision, tongue goes to the point. I have my little smile and I invite the breath in to my belly. So, Then you can invoke a quality or an intention that you want to bring in the moment. So a useful one is courage, for example, if you're facing a difficult situation, or grace, or poise, or creativity, or compassion.
0: Yeah. Oh, sorry, keep going. Keep going. I guess I'm thinking for connection, I was like, curiosity.
1: Mm -hmm. Or humility or being a glowworm. So you get the idea is now you're conscious and you can choose the way you want to be from this physiology. You have way more freedom. If you're in fight flight, you've gave up your freedom. You're pre-programmed. It's all played out and you're probably going to make the situation worse. So free yourself. And this is the physiology of internal freedom. And then you're right. It's good to add a conscious intention. And we just shared some of my personal favorites. People can make up their own. Mm,
0: I dig this. I dig this. And and I'm chuckling a little bit because I see Dr. Marsha Reynolds is one of your book endorsers. And it feels like a little bit of her is what I'm reminded of as we do this. We had her back at episode 14, one of the most popular episodes and
1: it's powerful stuff. Well, she's an old friend of mine. And she teaches you how to outsmart your brain. What she's talking about is outsmart these habitual pre-programmed part of yourself so that you can use your creative intelligence. That's, she and I have always uh, – we just had a meeting of the minds when we first met because we were on the same wavelength of using different metaphors to teach people these universal truths about self-balance and self-understanding and inner freedom so that you can have a more beautiful life. That's really what this is about.
0: Excellent. Well, tell me, Michael, is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about a few of your favorite things?
1: One of the fundamental points of this book, I emphasized it by translating it into Latin, <laughs> is "conjungere ad solvendum, which means connect before solving. All right. It's based on a lot of really practical wisdom. It's based on the work of some of the greatest therapists. They find that people in therapy resolve their biggest issues when they feel they've made a real empathic connection with the therapist. Well, guess what? Same thing happens with your husband or your wife or your children, and the same thing happens with your team at work. So connect before solving. Oh, excellent. Thank
0: you. So now, Michael, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Okay. I've
1: got a lot of favorite quotes, but I'm going to give you my favorite quote that I put in The Art of Connection. And it's in the chapter on listening. It's from Andre Gide, who won the Nobel Prize in Literature. And he said, Everything that needs to be said has already been said. But since no one was listening, everything must be said again.
0: That's good. Oh, that's fun. I could chew on that for a while. Very nice.
1: And how about a favorite book? Favorite book. Well, the book that really got me started was Man's Search for Meaning. There's two actually, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl and Man's Search for Himself by Rollo May. I read those two books when I was 14 or 15. And then I read Towards a Psychology of Being by Abraham Maslow. And then I read Memories, Dreams, Reflections by Carl Jung. And I'd say those books set the course for the rest of my life.
0: Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite tool, something that helps you be awesome at your job? Oh,
1: well, it is centering practice. It's what I shared earlier. And to me, it's so important. I mean, I do it for probably about an hour a day. Oh, wow. I do about 20 to 30 minutes of Qigong standing meditation. and then. I do various sets of qigong that I've cultivated. I teach, um, I've studied this for many years, and I try to teach the ones that are most helpful to others. And I've been teaching the ones that I actually do myself because I figured there's a reason I chose to do them, so they're the ones that I think I will share with others. And my other key tool or practice is when I'm home, I take a silent walk in the woods every day. I just I took one earlier today in between interviews. And I just shut off the phone and go for a walk. And I don't speak. I mean, if somebody says hello, I say hello. Somebody else is going out for a walk, but basically it's just silence and nature. And wow. I mean, (laughs) what a blessing.
0: Awesome. And is there a particular nugget that you share in your books or when you're speaking and working with clients that seems to particularly resonate, get folks nodding their heads and taking notes with all the more vigor?
1: Well, it's fun that you mentioned that one because this book, The Art of Connection, building relationships, the notion of being a glowworm, the idea of being around people who inspire you. So one of the ideas that I've had around that for many years is it's great to find real people who you can be with, who inspire you. And you can also draw on historical sources. So, I wrote a book called How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci. And why did I do that? Because Leonardo was my childhood hero. And I immersed myself in studying his notebooks and translated it into this book. And the point of that is, I love Leonardo. So, I learned as much as I could about him and it enriched my life immeasurably. So, the nugget for people is figure out the Historical figure that inspires you the most and immerse yourself in that person. You can have a virtual mentor as well as a real life one.
0: Oh, beautiful. Thank you. And Michael, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them?
1: I invite them to my website, michaelgelb.com. It's G E L B, michaelgelb.com. People can sign up for our free newsletter. We've got lots of free articles and we're just getting our YouTube channel going, but we're going to be posting all kinds of practices for people. If people are interested in the Qigong, we have a couple of those that are up there. You have to hunt around for them a little bit, but we're going to make it clearer and more accessible. It's all at michaelgelb.com. And do
0: you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs?
1: Yes, Yes. My challenge is to bring passionate curiosity to understanding the dynamics of your relationships. Don't take people for granted. Don't put them in a box. Try to see everybody in a fresh, open, compassionate empathic loving way and then notice the effect that has on yourself when you look in the mirror in the morning oh beautiful thank you
0: well michael this has been a real treat you could hear it in your voice that you walk the talk and so thanks for sharing all of this wisdom great stuff and i wish you lots of luck in staying centered and book sales and teaching and changing lives and all you're up to thank you so much i really really liked it how michael Went through the detail there in terms of the smiling with the tongue on that point. Your full upright stature aligned on you know, the floor. Those pieces of detail are helpful, and they really make a world of difference. Partially just because you have to bring so much attention on your own physiology just in order to execute it. It sort of works. Automatically by having done it, if that makes sense. So I hope that you dug that and it wasn't too out there for you. I'm calibrating the out there meter with you listeners. So please shoot me know anytime, Pete at awesome at your job.com. For me, it's right about on the outer edges in a good way. And personally, the Enneagram and the Barry Michaels episodes were a little bit beyond my out there range. But you never know. You got to get the balance just right. So I love hearing from you. Let me know what you think. And uh, this stuff, I think, is so handy. I've used it. I dig it. It's working for me. Try it out. Even if it feels a little weird, I think you'll see some good things, some good nice fruit from it. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links, to items that we've referenced, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F240. And I hope you push subscribe. If you have not already, you'll hear from folks like our very next guest. It is Dave Crenshaw, and he is talking about the power of having fun, why it's important, how to make time for it successfully and effectively, and how great things will flow from that. So I hope to catch you there. Peace.